The woman uh, sits in her office not long ago and she is fumbling kind of nervously with something and finally when we get through the small talk, she gets to the point. She has a decision to make, she says, uh, whether she should stay in the organization or, or accept an offer to go somewhere else. She likes where she's working but doesn't know if there's a future here. So she asks, what do you think God wants me to do? The man sits in my office and talks about a meeting that will take place tomorrow. There's been something of a minor scandal come up in the organization. He has damning evidence and he wants to know whether he should bring it to the meeting or leave it out. If he brings it to the meeting, should he write it? Should he say it? And if he says it, what should he say? What should he leave out? He doesn't want to alienate himself from the rest of the company but he doesn't want this scandal to continue. What do I do? He says, I wish I knew what God wanted me to do. Young business person approaches me and said, I have an opportunity to buy another company. If I buy it, then my profit and my influence will really go crazy. But to buy it, I have to put at risk a lot of present capital. And I'm not sure that the company can sustain that risk. He says he's been up at night thinking about this, praying about this, and he wants to know what God wants him to do. That story, what does God want me to do? Have you ever asked that before? <laughs> I have no doubt in my mind that if you knew what God wanted you to do, you'd do it in a heartbeat. I, I trust you completely. It's just that you sometimes don't know. The single mom doesn't know whether she should go back to work, whether she should go back to school, or whether she should just stay home as a full-time parent. She can't do all three of those. The student wants to know whether he should change majors or stay within the same one. The social activist wants to know whether they should run for office and try by legislature to change things that they up to now only believe in. The shop owner wants to know which candidate he should hire. All of these decisions are big decisions, and I believe that if we knew for sure what God wanted, we would do it. What we've learned in the last few weeks is that discerning what God wants is not a separate act off by itself. Rather, it is part of a larger story. If we want to make wise decisions, then we have to live in a way long before those decisions get made. We can't suddenly use a few skills that somebody's given us and call down wisdom from heaven. No, we have to be in a position to make wise decisions. So discernment starts with posturing. Am I putting myself in a position to hear from God? Not just now when I have a decision, but all the time. My ability to make wise decisions is fed by the amount of scripture that has become ingrained in my being. I don't just cite the Bible. I live it. I meditate on it. It is more and more shaping 
the way that I see the world. And the more that the biblical imagination takes over my imagination, probably the better decision I'm going to make. And as Ethan said last week, discernment becomes easier when we walk in obedience. The best way to interpret the Bible is to do it. It isn't to study it or to learn one of the languages. It is to start wherever we are and do the next thing that we know God wants us to do. And when we do that, more becomes visible. So discernment then is part of a bigger process. It's like a reflex in a much larger movement. As far back as the Old Testament, people were always trying to discern. They believed that wisdom was out there, usually in the hand of God or the gods, and they had to find ways to access it. And so, as far back as Moses, the high priest Aaron, Moses' brother, wore a breastplate called an ephod. It had 12 stones in four rows, one stone for each tribe of Israel. Inside of the ephod was a small little like envelope that was sewn into the garment. In the envelope, what was called the Urim and the thummim. It's kind of weird words, isn't it? Nobody knows really how this worked, but it was believed that when the priest wore the Urim and thummim over his heart and he went in to pray for the nation, he would discern the will of God. It was known as God's yes or no. We had to know. How do you know? When Gideon wanted to know whether God was with him, he said, how about if I lay a, a wool fleece on the ground and in the morning, if the whole ground is dry, but the fleece is wet with the dew, then I'll know that you're with me. So he got up in the morning and sure enough, the fleece was wet, the ground was dry. And he said, do you have time for one more? Can we flip this? <laughs> can, can we make all of the ground wet and the fleece dry? And if you do, then I'll know that you're with me. And he woke up the next morning and that's exactly what happened. So Gideon knew. Hezekiah was told that even though he was dying, he would get better. The prophet said this. He said, the Lord will give you another 15 years of your life. Hezekiah said, how do I know this? You're not just making this up. Isaiah said to the king, here's what'll happen. When the sun sets tonight, instead of the shadow going down the steps, the shadow will actually reverse itself. So as the sun comes down, the shadow will retreat up the steps instead of down the steps, 10 steps. Sure enough, when the sun started to set, the king watched the shadow do the impossible. It went in reverse. Ahaz was worried about whether God would be with the nation. And um, the prophet said to him, how about if God gives you a sign? Here's one. A virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. Have you heard this? And they'll call him Emmanuel. 
God with us, then you'll know God is with you. It's in Isaiah chapter 7. So that is exactly what happens. So throughout the Bible, people are always looking for ways to know what God wants them to do. When I was a kid, we had our own ways, I admit, less sophisticated. We flipped coins. We flipped baseball bats or tennis rackets. And then in the midst of my confusion, someone invented the magic eight ball. This was priceless. Now, what this is, is a cube at the bottom of the eight ball with answers on it. So if you would ask the question and then rub the eight ball and turn it over, then the answer would magically appear. Now, you couldn't ask just open-ended questions. You can't say, should I vote for the Republicans or for the Democrats? Now, I know you already know that, but because it's not on here. You would have to ask a yes-no question, should I vote for the Republicans? And when you turn it over, it says, I'm not going to tell you what it says. I asked it, should Detroit sell its football team? It said, definitely. So I threw it away. The idea behind an eight ball, I know that sounds ludicrous, doesn't it? You think like, why on earth would you actually trust something like, well, look, why would you cast lots? Why would you trust an ephod? Why would there be a magic stone inside the breastplate and that somehow was set apart from a magic eight ball? How is it that certain people would know what God was going to do, but nobody else would know what God was going to do? Then all of a sudden, something occurred in my life. Pentecost. Pentecost was a game changer. On Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came down and filled every believer. Suddenly, the capacity to know what God wanted us to know was taken away from the few and distributed equally across all of God's people. What am I saying? I'm saying you possess right now as a child of God the capacity to know what God wants you to know. Why would he hide this from you? Why would he take what he wants you to know and give it to somebody else? At Pentecost, it became all of God's people. You swallowed the eight ball. Now it's within you. It's not something external. So before Pentecost, the way we discerned was to ask. I got to find the person or I got to find the medium and I have to ask the medium the right question. But after Pentecost, the way to discern was to listen. How do I get into a conversation with God that is ongoing? And as part of that conversation, we mention, sometimes as an aside, some of the decisions 
that I have to make. But I'm not trying to pull down some supernatural wisdom that is always outside of me. This is the power of the story of Samuel the prophet. There is a scene in the Old Testament where Israel has a king. God says, anoint another one. What God said literally is, I've chosen one of Jesse's sons to be the next king. I want you to find him and I want you to anoint him. Why it is God would not just tell Samuel, by the way, his name is David. So when you go to Bethlehem, just ask for David. He does not do this. He says, there are seven sons. You are to find the one of the seven that I'm going to anoint. By the way, you could get this wrong. So he goes off to Bethlehem and he has to try and read God's mind. And so as the sons are brought in front of Samuel for him to anoint them, he looks at the oldest son and he's taller and he's stronger than all the others. And Samuel thinks to himself, this has got to be the guy. This is how we chose King Saul. He was taller than everybody else. Leaders in those days were chosen by their physical stature because kings led them into war. Kings did not rule countries by policies. They ruled countries by war. And so the physical stature of a king was pretty important to choosing one. And so when the oldest son comes before him, Samuel's ready to anoint, and he hears this voice from the inside say, that's not the one. I've rejected him. Well, he asks for the second, and this is not the one. I've also rejected him. And then the third, and the fourth, the fifth, and the sixth. And suddenly, Samuel's beside himself. And then the Lord says, wait for it. God does not look at things that humans look at. Humans look at the outside. God looks at the heart. Two things stood out to me as I read this story. One is that the power to know what God wants is located inside of you, not somewhere else. If you're still waiting for signs or constellations to line up for you, you haven't caught up to the New Testament yet. You maybe have not yet heard that God has poured his spirit on all his sons and daughters. You have this capacity. No one has just ever told you this and you've not learned to develop it. The second thing that stands out to me is that the way to know this is by looking at the heart. Human beings look at the outside. God looks at the heart. Pastor, should I buy the other company or should I just stay with the company I have? Human beings look at profit loss statements, but God looks at the heart. 
Should I take this job or should I move to another place and accept the one that's been offered me? Human beings look at projections, job descriptions. God looks at the heart. This doesn't mean that all of those other things are unimportant. They just mean they're not most important. And we have been trained by our culture to make decisions by listing the pros, listing the cons, weighing them, and then making the decision. The problem is that if we are looking at the wrong things, then it doesn't matter what the pros and the cons are if we haven't even seen the things that God is looking at yet. Does that make sense? We have got to learn to read things by the heart. Proverbs says, above all, guard the heart, for out of the heart are the issues of life. Jeremiah says, the heart is incredibly deceptive. No one can know it except God. Hebrews 4.12 says, the word of God discerns the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. So the heart lies at the core of our decision-making, not the information, it's the heart. What is the posture of the heart? When I have decisions to make, three questions come before my mind. The first is where does this come from? The second is what's coming with it? What's loaded into this? And the third is where is this going? When I ask myself, where something's coming from, it generally has one of two sources. It's either uh, my real self or it's my false self. And I'm not using psychological terms right now. I'm using language from Colossians chapter three. Colossians chapter three says, there are two versions of me. One is the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. The other is the false self or what Paul calls the old self that is full of all kinds of corruption and impure thoughts and power and control. Whenever my decision is rooted in the real true self, I start to find my, I find liberty and freedom. There is energy as the decision starts to move along. But when something is rooted in my other self, I start to feel the pressure of my audience. I am looking for affirmation, approval, preeminence, status. 
I'm looking to be noticed. I want to control, manipulate. I won't admit this all the time. But the more I think about it, and the more I start playing out these options, I start to notice that one decision or the other feeds one of these two selves. My faults or fallen self is rooted in the person I think you want me to be. And so the whole thing is built on my performance. And so it's fragile. If things go poorly, I get real nervous and tense and I start biting. Because it's coming from the wrong place. Are you there? Listen, it does not matter how long you've been a Christian. You will wrestle with this. I'm not telling you that the lower self has to win. It doesn't. But I am telling you it is always there. Always there. Even when you say, oh, I consecrated myself, I'm good. You are not free from the pull of that lower part. The lower self wants to be noticed. And so it's motivated by pride, by greed, envy, selfishness, comfort, anger, fear. You'd be shocked how many decisions professionals can make out of fear or envy or anger. Here's the thing you have to know. If you are in Christ, then you are a new creature. Are you hearing me? So Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, you are seated with Christ in the heavenlies. Set your mind on things above. That's your real self. Not on things below your other self. Because you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And someday when Christ, who is your life? You have no other life. Did you know that? You have no other life but his. If you are in Christ. So for you to ask for something and make a decision that feeds your lower self, God, God cannot give that to you because in God's mind, that person doesn't exist. 
the only person that exists in God's mind is the one that is hidden with Christ in God. Can you understand? These are not just flowery words that Paul is praying over Christians, hoping someday we live up to these things. Paul is telling us the only reality there is. He says, there is no other you except the one God has created in Christ. When you make decisions that are rooted then on compassion and mercy and justice and forgiveness and unity and love, he says in Colossians chapter three, now you are deciding things out of your real self. Some of you this morning have anchored your identity in your sexuality. You don't know who you are. Some of you have anchored your identity in your ethnicity. You still don't know who you are. You have anchored yourself in your status, in your possessions, in your intelligence. Oh, wait. You've anchored yourself in the affirmations that other people are saying of you. You believe that you are what people say you are. You still do not know who you are. You are seated with Christ in the heavenlies. Never forget that. Never appeal to some self or version of you that is lower than that. That's not who you are. If you are in Christ, I'm not telling you the other one is bad. I'm telling you the other one in God's mind isn't even there. And so the more you elevate yourself in order to stand out, the less you actually exist. That person that you want to be, that you want other people to think you are, has never existed. It's a phantom in your mind. The one that God knows is seated with Christ. Are we okay? Partway through the decision-making process for me, I start to notice early indicators that things are going well or they're not going very well at all. My dad used to say, son, remember, God is not the author of confusion. He's the author of peace. Remember Paul said, used to say that God has not given us the spirit of fear. He's given us the spirit of power. 
power and of love and of a sound mind. And so now that you've started to make this decision, Steve, is the decision leading to peace or is it leading to confusion? Is it giving you a sense of fear and insecurity that you have to perform to keep up with the image? Or is it leading to power and love and a sound mind? Is it making you freer, not more in bondage? Is there a sense, Steve, that God is acting ahead of you, bringing the right people at the right time and they're falling into place? Or is there a sense that you have to manufacture these things, prove yourself right when you decided weeks ago? And finally, uh, um, I ask myself, um, where is this? I had a conversation with someone not long ago who was wrestling with this very thing. There was an issue in the family. Somebody was acting in aberrant ways and didn't know whether he should call it out. He was afraid if he would call it out, he would distance himself from the family. But if he didn't call it out, the person would continue to act in these ways and that could ruin the family. So on a phone call one day, a long phone call, he said, I want to play out my options. I want to see which option might be best. And if I decide to say something, do I write it? Do I say it? And if I write it, what exactly should I write? So one of the things we did was to go to the end or to the outcome and ask, after the letter is written, if there's a letter at all, what would you like to see happen? What's the best possible outcome? And if the person says, I need to write this letter because I got to get this off my chest, well, then that's the old self talking. You probably shouldn't write anything at all. But if the person says, I feel like I need to hold the family together, I want to bring peace and order and structure, and at the same time, I want to call this behavior out, well, then maybe you should take it on. So we went to James chapter 3, where James says, whenever you make decisions, there is a wisdom from above and there's a wisdom from below. The wisdom from above is first of all pure and then peaceable and then gentle. It yields to other people. It's humble. So we started playing out, if you were to write this letter or approach the family, how would you say it in a way that brought peace, gentleness, humility? How would you challenge this person while you yielded to others in the room? Became a beautiful way to structure what that confrontation would be. If it comes from below, then it will be filled with selfish ambition. So here's what this looks like for me, you guys. Whenever I have a decision to make, um, the first thing I do is to uh, try to identify what the question is. You'd be surprised how hard this is because I have lots of questions. And so I try to write as many of them down as I can. But I generally find after I've written 10, 12, 15 questions that there is one question that lies at the center of them. And it's always simple. There's an elegance built right into it. There's a sense that if I could answer this question, the others would fall like dominoes. The moment I ask it, 
some of my options disappear almost immediately. The question well asked is half the problem. You may need help for this. Sometimes I get it. I call people, I talk through the issue, and I say, what is the question? What is the nature of my question? I don't even know. (laughs) Once I know the question, I list the options. That's the second phase for me. And then I often ask, are these the only options? Or like Jesse's sons, is there one still out there that I haven't seen? Can we think about that? Is there other options on the table that we haven't imagined yet? Once I do that, I go into a prayer of indifference. By indifference, I don't mean who cares or whatever. I mean a prayer in which I abandon any selfish ambitions I might have. They are with me all the time. So I have to go through a process of praying my own agenda out of me. It's an act of total surrender so that I truly can say at the end, I do not choose one thing or another. I want nothing but the glory of Jesus Christ. Finally, and that can take a while, finally, I am ready to move the options in front of me. And as I do this, I start to weigh each option by which one of those selves it elevates. Some of them masquerade as being noble, valiant. But the more I drill into them, the more I find they're playing to the weak, to the ingrown, to the self-absorbed, and I have to let them go. 